I remember the first time um, seeing something on set that I had written. That's a wild, wild moment, I think, because I feel like the idea of magic is creating something from nothing. And that's essentially what writing is. You know, you're coming up with an idea, you write it, and then someone thinks it's good enough to make something out of, and they build sets for it, and people memorize your lines, then you walk in, and this thing that was just in your mind is all of a sudden there. And um, I think that's such a surreal experience the first few times that happens. It's still surreal for me, honestly. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratise the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is writer Asha Michelle Wilson. With beginnings as a script and showrunning assistant, Asha's work caught the eye of the Ryan Murphy TV world, which led to successful stints in the team of projects like Scream Queens and American Horror Story. Now a fully-fledged writer, Asha has recently worked on much-loved hits such as FX's Archer and some top-secret upcoming Netflix shows. Welcome, Asha. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I am so happy to be here. What an intro, by the way. I'm honored. Thank you very much. I'm excited about today to have you on the show because as a young writer, you can give a perspective that some of my other guests can't quite give. And I think a lot of our listeners will be really, really benefit from digging into how you got started and what it's like. I'd like to begin, though, by asking, what did your parents do? And did that have any effect on your career? Um, so growing up, both my parents worked in computers. That was kind of like the thing of the 80s and 90s. Um, but my mom was always very creative, very into writing. And both my parents were lovers, hardcore. Um, and so I think that really helped grow my love of TV and film. And I think a lot of my friends always joke that my brain is a little bit broken. I can watch a show and I will never forget what happened in that show. If a friend is like, what was the episode where this happened on New Girl? I'm like season three, episode 12. And I think I've been like that since I was a kid. And both my parents always say that I've been writing since I was six years old, writing in journals and telling stories and kind of living in that headspace. And so um, I definitely think they were very, very supportive of what I wanted to do and of showing me new content, which I always appreciated. Although I wasn't allowed to watch TV during the week, which I will never let my parents forget because I was so obsessed with TV. I think my mom was like, you need to focus on homework and reading and that sort of thing. And now I'm like, well, I'm writing TV, so maybe you should let me have a TV in my room. But <laughs> um, they were still very supportive despite having careers in different industries. That's fantastic. Were you a Hollywood kid? A lot of the people I speak to were kind of born and raised in Hollywood or are you from far away from there? No, I'm from Southern Florida, a place where old people go to die. Um, so not exactly. There is a Hollywood Florida, um, but a very different version of Hollywood there. Uh, no, I've been out here about eight years now, but I did study um, film and TV for a long time before coming out here. But no, I'm not an LA native at all. So how's your experience when, was it the whole pack your bags, off you go, arrive in LA, go and sleep on someone's sofa? What happened? That was essentially what happened. No, you make it sound a lot more glamorous in that way. Kind of the like, I'm just going and it's my dream. <laughs> um, 
I was, I was very lucky in the sense that the school that I went to Elon university. And so um, there were a lot of graduates who, who had come out to LA before me. So there was a nice kind of safety net in the sense that I knew I would have people I could hang out with. I knew I could have people to go out for coffee with and that sort of thing. And I had two friends that were moving, well, multiple friends, but two friends specifically that were moving out to LA at the same time as me. So we were able to get an apartment together. And so I only had to sleep on a friend's couch for about a week. And I already had a friend before I even came out who I Facebook messaged and was like, can I crash on your couch? And she ended up being my roommate a few years later. So um, I was very lucky in that regard that I think the people who sort of don't know anyone and just come out with $10 and a dream, I'm like, super respect to you for doing that because that's not an easy thing to do. And so I did move out about a month after I graduated college, but I definitely had a, a big support network in coming out here. Did that support network help you in getting your first industry job? Oh, what a segue. Have you done this before? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was out here and just kind of looking for any kind of assistant work. I knew I wanted to write scripted television, but that's not an, the easiest thing to come out and be like, my first job was a staff writer. Anyone who does that, I'm like, mad props to you. But um, yeah, I a friend of mine from my university had a friend who was an assistant and was getting promoted in her job. And so she was like, I need someone to take over my job. Do you know anyone looking for assistant work? And my friend was like, I do. Sent her my resume. Um, and that was in reality TV. So that was um, not what I wanted to do, but I did want to pay my bills. So <laughs> it helped with that. What's reality TV like? We've all got our ideas. Um, I think, that, well, there's lots of different types of reality. And in my PA days, I worked in a couple different realms of that. That job was more of the um, kind of animal planet style reality. You know, um, it was a show called Finding Bigfoot, which uh, is exactly what it sounds like. It was. Did they find him? I don't think they have. And um, But if they have, someone correct me on that. If they have found him, I might be wrong. But at the time that I worked there, they did not. Um, and I kind of did a lot of office PA stuff. I, you know, got snacks and I answered phones and scheduled meetings. And um, I was not, it was my first non-internship job. Like I had been in LA for a couple summers prior and worked as, you know, a writer's assistant intern or as an office PA intern. And this was my first paid office job. Um, and it, I, I want to say that I was great at it and I knocked it out of the park. I didn't. I was fine. You know, I, and I think um, it's always tricky that first job because your boss can really make or break the job. And I think nothing against my bosses at the time. I think they are good people. I think we just didn't mesh well together. I think my style and their style, you know, it was more creative kind of there's this 30 rock joke where she's like executives are like mm, and I'm more like blah, blah, blah. and so <laughs> I think I was more like blah, 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 and they were like we want someone a bit more like us um but I worked there for about nine months and then um I left I quit and um ended up kind of doing a lot of general jobs you know that was but I'm really grateful for that job in a lot of ways because it taught me sort of the hierarchy in offices and it taught me you know the kind of baseline of stuff to do when it comes to getting snacks for the office and making sure you don't mess up your boss's schedule and that sort of thing. So when you talk about then becoming a script assistant would you be able to explain a little bit about how that works because like I'm in the industry and I don't quite understand sometimes how the script department works particularly because maybe I'm from England 
I know the American system is slightly different. And, you know, when you're on a lot of online forums of screenwriters and stuff, they're often trying to understand, you know, the staff writer and the, the writer's assistant. Because when you say writing assistant, arguably that sounds like a, a PA to the assistant. Do you mean that? Or is that more generalized role? It can honestly be both. I know the system, obviously, in the UK is usually one person writing the entire show, so you don't have a room. Um, so the first job where I wrote, I was like kind of a writer's assistant script coordinator, was on this animated show for Nickelodeon. And um, I worked my way up from showrunner's assistant, which was what you were saying. It was the assistant to the showrunner. Um, but I made it very clear that I wanted to work my way up and I was willing to help. And I think kind of a small tip is if you're trying to break in and learn a lot, I think kids animation can actually be a really, really great place because the hours are very good. Most of the people who work there have kids themselves and they want to be home by six o'clock, but also kind of everybody knows everyone in that world. And so, and it's kind of a one person can carry three jobs. I worked there for a year and a half and I was a showrunner's assistant, writer's assistant, office PA and script coordinator. And so to answer your question directly, I think generally when people talk about writer's PA, that's usually like an office PA. It's usually someone who gets coffee and snacks for the office. They pick up lunch. They sort of make sure the office supplies are all handled. It's um, the baseline. And then writer's assistant is usually, sometimes it can be like a showrunner's assistant to one person, but usually they're talking about the person who takes the notes for the room. So in a writer's room, minimum, you'll have three people. Max, you could have 12 to 15 people in a room. And so you need someone to take notes on what everybody is saying and compile them into some kind of readable form that's not just like, and then John said this, you know, and um, the writer's assistant is in charge of that, which is a great job, but it can be hard because if you miss one thing one person said, and they're kind of like, what was that thing that David said? And then if you missed it, they missed the big line. Exactly. You can't handle the truth. The guy forgot to write down. <laughs> Could you imagine? And so I think that's um, definitely a very, very, I think, important job and an underestimated job because it really does help build the show. And then again, a script coordinator sort of makes the script work. It puts all the pieces together. Some room, I've been in some rooms and some jobs where it's called room writing, where certain people take certain scenes. It's not one person writing a whole episode, um, which the WGA frowns on, so I will not say which shows they were. But um, the script coordinator would then compile all of those scenes together. So that's also a really important job because it makes the script readable. And so by the time that in kids animation, I was able to do all of those jobs. And um, I think those, again, are very underestimated, but vital roles in making sure that you know, everyone is getting the script in the way that the writers want them to get the script. The show you're talking about there is Fresh Beat Band of Spies, the animated show. show. <laughs> and I, one of the questions I wrote, wrote down, I wanted to ask about that is, what's it like on a children's show where you've got a bunch of adults trying to get into the headspace of writing for children? What's that like? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, the kind of executive producers of that show, Scott and Nadine, who are amazing people, um, they had, they've worked in kids' television for ages. And that show, Fresh Beat Band of Spies, was a spinoff of a live-action show called Fresh Beat Band. Um, and so we were able to use those same characters and um, their headspaces to kind of put into the show. But I think um, what ends up working really well is they all have kids and they've all had kids and kind of seen what's interested in kids, what kids are interested in. And I think the thing that I found most interesting about that in terms of headspace is they always said, especially with uh, kids shows that had a musical element to it, you had to 
have a show that would keep the kids engaged, but not make the parents want to change the channel. That was always the rule mm, because if, it, if yeah. an adult finds something too annoying while they're working in the background or cooking or whatever, they're going to change the channel to something less annoying. And so that balance was something that I always found really interesting. Um, and so I think a big part of it is just getting to that silly part of your mind, the sort of the rhyming part of your mind and the part of, you know, um, colorful. Yeah. Yeah. And people who are good at dad jokes come into play. There were a lot of puns on that show and um, a lot of just like, silly noises. And um, we had Tom Kenny voice our animal character and he's the voice of SpongeBob. So I think when you have actors like that, that are just able to like get in that headspace, it really helps elevate it a lot. But um, yeah, I think it's just like you said, the colorful, silly headspace helps a lot. Where was it that you went from that into the Ryan Murphy ecosphere? Was that, that was a a big break. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, So that show, we only had one season. And so um, I was kind of, we were hoping for another one. So after we got canceled, I was sort of free floating. I was doing a lot of freelance PA work, set PA work. I worked on a reality cooking show. I babysat for a while. um, And funnily enough, um, I think I've told the story before, uh, someone I was babysitting for was also a writer. And uh, she was like, I just want to make clear, I'm not looking for a nanny. I'm looking for a part-time babysitter. My kid's already 12 years old. And I was like, great. I don't want to be a full-time nanny. I'm just looking to make some money right now. And she was like, this is perfect. And she asked what I normally did. I told her I was a writer. And she asked to read one of my scripts, which was very generous of her. And um, she liked it enough that when she heard about a writer's PA job opening up on Screen Queens, she called me and asked me if I was interested. I was like, absolutely, please sign me up. And I remember this so clearly. She called me on a Wednesday and was like, send me your resume if you're interested. I sent it to her immediately from my phone. That is a tip I will give to anyone out there looking for work. Keep a copy of your resume handy and ready to email to anybody um, if you're out and about. And um, she texted me back on Friday and was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot to send your resume. I'll send it right now. And I was like, well, that's done. There's no way that, you know, two days later I'll be able to get it. And they called me the following Tuesday while I was in a Target dressing room trying on like sweaters or something. (laughs) And the glamour. Exactly. The Hollywood glamour of it all. Um, And they asked if I could come in for an interview that week. I was working a PA job and um, I asked my boss, I was like, this is like a dream for me. I really want to be in a writer's kind of situation. Can I please just have like a couple hours? And they're like, go do it. It's fine. And so I think I was, again, very lucky to have people around me who were willing to send my resume, were willing to let me take some time off work, um, were willing to, you know, help me in that way. And so um, I went in and I remember it was my first time on the Fox lot. And I was like, this is, you know everything. This is it. And as I was walking up, I was like, there's no way that I'm going to get this job. This is such a far shot for me that I'm just going to be myself and who gives a shit. Ooh, can I swear on this? Sorry. You can say whatever you like. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I was like, I'll just go for it. And so um, I went in and I had a really great chat with two people who ended up being my bosses and then coworkers and colleagues. And um, I remember at towards the end of the interview, one of them was like, 
he like halfway through the interview, he opened his laptop and started like emailing something and it was nothing to do with me. It was like something for work. And I was like, oh, I definitely don't have this job if I'm boring him so much that he's doing work in the middle of the interview. But then he, at the end of the interview was like, I just have to say, I love you. I think you're fantastic. (laughs) Amazing. And so, um, yeah, I think a few days later I got the email that I got the job and then I was kind of in that world for the next four years. What's a Ryan Murphy writer's room like? I can imagine it's pretty fun. Some run very similar, some run very different. I think something that um, is I've always really admired about Ryan is that he really does want to be involved in each show. He really, it's not like he just puts a show on the air and then he never looks at it again. He reads all the scripts he wants to be involved despite having a dozen happening at once. Um, But he's not in the room every day because who could have the time to do that? And so he puts people obviously that he trusts in charge of running the rooms. And um, I think, so for, you know, Scream Queens, there was a much smaller writer's room. It was three four writers and they had all worked together on Glee. So they kind of had a shorthand with each other. It was kind of like Ryan would say something and they would say something and they would say something and then they'd go off to write. And it was kind of very to the point. They knew each other's styles very well. Um, Versus something like, American Horror Story, which I ended up writing on for two seasons, um, has a much bigger writer's room. There was eight to 10 of us at any time. And so um, there was a lot more of a Ryan kind of saying his general idea for the season or for the episode and then us kind of fleshing it out. And, you know, a lot of that back and forth of sort of um, working together to bring that idea to life, kind of. Um, And I think that show is Ryan's baby in a way that, you know, it's been on for 10 years now. It's, um, I think, very important to him. And so he wanted to be very involved in that. So, you know, there would be times where he would kind of give us an idea and we'd sort of run with it and go it go in a certain direction with it. And then he'd read it and be like, oh, no, this isn't what I want. <laughs> and then we'd have to kind of rework it. Um, or he'd come in one day and kind of be like, okay, I came up with an idea for episode six. We're going to flash forward 10 years. And we're like, oh, okay. And so we kind of go with that. And so um, I think that show is very good at coming up with ideas, you know, and um, doing the craziest thing we could think of and then doing the thing even crazier than that. And I think if you watch it, you could definitely see that on screen. There's a lot of um, ideas of things that you've not seen in anything else before, things that might be inspired by something, but sort of are given new life in the context of the show. Um, and there was also a lot of scary stuff with that show. <laughs> I am a total wimp when it comes to scary stuff, which everyone laughs at because I worked on American Horror Story. Um, but it would just be like, okay, what's the creepy way that he could murder somebody? And it's like throat slashing. No. Okay, maybe he takes a nail gun and one by one they put nail guns in his head. And it's like, that's the one. And it's like, okay, <laughs> this is overriding now. So um, that show definitely had um, a lot going on in that respect. Um, and, you know, then there were shows like 911, which um, I worked on and I was actually going to write on before going on American Horror Story. And that show, because it's more of a procedural drama and a lot of the cases are based on real life incidents, that was a lot of research, which is a bit of a different vibe. You know, you want to research real 911 cases that have happened. You want to research, you know, what would happen if this medical case came up, how would someone handle it? And so um, that kind of took on a different life in that way because it would be people coming into the room with like, here are my five ideas of potential cases we could do and then building an episode around that. 
So you mentioned the the scariness of all the things in American Horror Story there. Did you have like a big wall of, you know, throat slash thing and then various people come up with ideas during the day? <laughs> it was quite depraved, really, to think about that all day. Oh, I think, um, so I will say for the last season I was on, which was 1984, season nine, um, we definitely, because um, the, the, the horror movies of the 80s were such um, an obvious inspiration for 1984, um, we had a wall of things we had seen in movies and ways we'd seen people getting killed. And then we'd have another um, whiteboard of like ways we would want to do it. So we would watch something like, um, I'm pretty sure this either happened in one of the um, Friday the 13th sequels or in Sleepaway Camp, I can't remember, where um, somebody, it's an awful, awful death where someone in a wheelchair gets like pushed down the stairs and they keep the shot on it forever. It is horrible, horrible, horrible. But that was of course on the board of like, is this something we want to do? We did not do that, thankfully. Um, but it would be things like that where we watched a lot of movies. So I guess there was a bit of research in that. We kind of wanted to get into the tone of that. Um, but there were a lot of ideas of deaths on the wall that we didn't end up using. There was one of... Um, because the 80s had, those movies had so much, um, if you do drugs, you'll die. If you have sex, you'll die. Um, we had one we never got to use, which was like um, somebody, like the killer puts glass in somebody's cocaine and they snort the cocaine and die. Like that was what we wanted to do that we didn't end up doing. Um, we had one with like firecrackers <laughs> up someone's butt. That was what we didn't end up doing. So there were plenty of um, ideas on the board for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which looking back, if someone had just walked into that room, it would have been like, what is happening right now? So yeah. I hope you're enjoying Red Carpet Rookies. To keep providing high quality content from guests like today's, it would be amazing if you could help support the show at redcarpetrookies.com. There you can find Red Carpet Rookies character merch or subscribe to our Patreon page to receive exclusive content like podcast video recordings and monthly Ask Me Anythings. For our top tier patrons, you will also receive access to all filmmaking courses we create, which currently stands as just one class on how to write your first screenplay with Final Draft, but we will be expanding to new areas soon. So hopefully see you over at redcarpetrookies.com. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get back to the show. Did you ever get to set to see any of your creations? Yeah, that I remember the first time um, seeing something on set that I had written, that's a wild, wild moment, I think, um, because I, <laughs> I talk a lot about magic when it comes to Hollywood. I think everybody does because it can feel very magical sometimes. But um, I feel like the idea of magic is creating something from nothing. And that's essentially what writing is. You know, you're coming up with an idea, you write it, and then someone thinks it's good enough to make something out of, and they build sets for it, and people memorize your lines, then you walk in, and this thing that was just in your mind is all of a sudden there. And um, I think that's such a surreal experience the first few times that happens. It's still surreal mm -hmm. for me, honestly. Um, but I remember, yeah, the first time I was on set and you hear people saying your lines and they're coming to you being like, is that the way that you wanted it to happen? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you did a great job. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it was really cool. That was um, season eight was the first season that I was a staff writer on. And um, that was the witchy season, which was um, very fun for me because I love witchy stuff. And so um, I was kind of the person in the room that was like, okay, 
what's the witchy thing they could be learning in class? And I was like, uh, they're turning flower petals into butterflies. And they were like, great. And so um, going on set to like see them sort of make that and the CGI magic they ended up doing was very, very cool. Yeah. When you're that new kid on the block in the room, is it, well, how, I guess it's obviously difficult. How do you assert yourself, you know, as a new person, particularly if, for example, a lot of them know each other from Glee and things like that. And the other example you mentioned, is that difficult? How do you navigate that? Um, that's a great question. I think the advice I always give to people in situations like that is don't try and fill a space that's already filled. You know, if people already have a shorthand, I was lucky when I got promoted on American Horror Story because I'd worked as a writer's assistant in the room. So all the writers knew me. We all kind of, they at least trusted me and it wasn't kind of like, who's this new person? Um, But I think when you're starting out, I think a really important thing is to find a space that you can fill well that's needed. So for example, when I first started as a writer's PA, everyone at in the Ryan Murphy world had known each other for some people had known each other for a decade, you know, plus, and you, you can't compete with that. You know, why would you even try? And so instead what I focused on was the kitchen. I was like, this kitchen is a mess. <laughs> I'm going to organize it. So I ordered like hermetically sealed jars. I um, reorganized all of the cabinets. I went to the grocery store every day and made sure everything was stocked. I kind of did it all. And of course they noticed, they were like, who redid this kitchen? And it was like, Asha did. And I think um, because of that, they sort weirdly, they sort of trusted me and were like, oh, you're actually a smart person. You can do things. And so um, I think that's sort of my first piece of advice for people starting in a new environment where everybody knows each other is to see what needs to be done, even if it's something small, because if it makes people's lives easier, they'll notice and, um, you know, kind of want to help with that. I think the other thing too is to make it very, very clear what you want to do. You know, I think um, on my lunch break, sometimes I would go to the other writers who were in their office and just kind of be like, hey, if you ever have a free moment, I'd love to just like talk with you about your experience here because people love talking about themselves if they didn't, podcasts wouldn't exist. Um, And so I think um, that was always really helpful and it made people get to know me as a person and me get to know them. So then you're developing your own, you know, back and forth with them. And I think um, that can help because you can't compete with, working on a very successful show for a decade. So you got to kind of make your own path. So I know that recently to change tax a little bit, you've worked on Archer. What's the difference between working on a live action show like American Horror Story, as opposed to writing the animation? Is there much difference in how you have to write it? Yes and no. Um, I think I've kind of been working. I, after I left Horror Story, I, um, I sold a couple shows and then I, um, one of them is in the animated space. And so that kind of allowed a foray into um, some more animated content. And I think there are some shows that are what's called board-driven shows, which uh, I believe, <laughs> I have a friend who will correct me immediately if I'm wrong on this, but I believe it's that the storyboards for the show kind of get made first. And then um, you kind of write the script off of those storyboards. But most of the animated shows I've worked on are script driven, which makes it more similar to live action. You know, you're writing the script, the actors read it, it gets animated. Um, Not in that order, but something like that. Um, I think the biggest difference is 
writing, taking um, advantage of the action lines in a way, um, because in live action, you know, the actors are going to put their own spin on it and their facial expressions and the way they move and everything. But in animation, you have to give a little bit more. You have to give a bit more of how people are responding to things, specifically the item that they're picking up. Um, and I think with something like Archer, it's a lot more... Um, action driven you know there's action scenes that um are you, you know you don't have to write very specifically but you do have to sort of think about the way things are moving you know because it's not like there's necessarily i mean the animators will obviously do their own choreography with it but yeah you should give some kind of direction which is true for live action as well so maybe it's not that different <laughs> maybe you know i i think um there are definitely, I think they're more similar than different in my experience with it. Um, but I think something that's been told to me in that world is to take advantage of the animation to sort of, um, you know, you can have someone do something totally ridiculous and then get up a second later and they're fine. Or, um, you know, I have a pilot that I wrote where I had a character like reach into someone's chest and pull out their heart and then, you know what I mean? And then kind of laugh about it. And so I feel like if you can take advantage of the, um, you know, genre, the medium, then I think that's something that definitely can change it a little bit. But in terms of actual dialogue and stuff, I feel like um, Archer was something that was very similar to the way that I wrote anyway, which is a very quick back and forth dialogue. And so in that regard, it wasn't that different. But um, I think you do want to take advantage of the medium. Obviously, a show like that has been on for many seasons now. Um, is it daunting to one step into the shoes of writing those much loved characters and two i'd be interested to know how does it kind of work do you get given like a bible of this is the character because are you expected to have watched every single episode before you know um you're not expected to luckily i already did <laughs> <laughs> um i had i dressed as lana like six years ago for halloween um so luckily i had some personal history with it but no i think um generally speaking when you're going into like freelance write an episode or you're going into a show that's been on they don't expect you to watch all of it I think they hope that you'll at least watch the most recent season or maybe watch the first season to sort of understand it um but the Archer guys were very very gracious with giving me like show bibles and scripts and character outlines and that sort of thing to get me in the headspace of it and um I of course just re-watched episodes on episodes of episodes to sort of um get myself in the headspace as well um I think with a show like that that you know the first 10 seasons were basically all written by Adam Reed um one person which is much more similar to the UK style of writing I think um makes it a different kind of, I don't want to say challenge, but a different kind of experience because it's someone's direct voice that you're essentially trying to mimic, but also put your own spin on at the same time. And so I think from that, what's great about it is that you have so much of a backlog to go to, to sort of look at. I remember slight tangent when I was writing um, a spec script for Broad City uh, years ago, which is the one that I actually actually sent to the woman I was babysitting for that she liked that got me screen queens. Um, I watched just, you know, probably a dozen episodes of Broad City over and over and over again to get into the headspace. And I would take notes on like, okay, 
this is how long their teaser lasts. Here's how they separate their A story and B story. Here's how they do their act structure. Do they always end on the cliffhanger on their act structure? You know, um, and I think that stuff can ruin a show for you, but it can also help with writing because it really gets you in that mind space. And so I think, um, luckily, like I said, um, the people at Archer were very, very helpful in terms of giving me a lot of that information up front and sort of talking through the outline with me and working with me on, um, what the best story structure for it was. Um, and, you know, there are some shows that I've either worked on or interviewed for or whatever, um, where they don't expect you to watch any of it. And they're like, we're doing a new thing this season. What's interesting about Horror Story, to go back to that, is, you know, we were an anthology series. And so every season was different. And even though a lot of the writers carried over from season to season, there wasn't as much of a sort of, okay, um, well, what happened at the finale that we have to bring back? You know, we could kind of start from scratch. Um, and so... It's not, I don't think it's as hard as it might seem to sort of get into that mindset as long as, you know, if you're a fan of the show, it always makes it easier. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a specific skill set to sort of work on. That's a fantastic answer. And to take it back to something you said, you very subtly dropped in a little phrase a little while back, which is in between I sold a couple shows. <laughs> Would you be able to talk a bit about that process? Because that's something that we never really hear about. And, you know, I've worked in production for quite a few years now, but I'm very much in the production and you never really see that element of it. And I know it's something people are very much interested in. How does one, the pitching process work and two, you know, how do you then sell a show? How does it work? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. Well, um, well, the pitching process is sort of a beast in and of itself. I think you'll find like workshops and books and, you know, talkbacks and panels just about pitching in and of itself. Um, because, you're not just pitching the show, you're pitching yourself at the same time, which is um, a little tricky sometimes. But I think, yeah, pitching is kind of its own thing. Um, and there are sort of different ways to go about it. There's a version where you want to attach people to it, you know, where you'll pitch to certain actors or production companies or directors or producers to get them on board. Because ultimately, when you go in to pitch, let's say to a studio or network, you really just want them to be like, okay, I trust you or I trust this team enough to make this happen. If you're what people call green, if you're green, which means you're new or you haven't sold anything before, or you haven't really worked too much, um, people are less likely to trust you because they're like, okay, if we put millions of dollars into this idea, how do we know you're going to deliver on it? And so that's why it, it can be helpful to attach, you know, Jennifer Lawrence or whoever to your show, because then they're like, okay, we know that this will work because a big name is attached to it. Um, in my experience, um, with the couple of shows that I sold, one of them, we attached a production, uh, company, like a produ two producers to it prior to pitching to the network. And the other one was just me. And so, um, those were different experiences in a way. And then I have a couple shows that I'm pitching next month that are going a different way as well. And so I think, um, that's sort of the like pre-pitching part, you know, where you're sort of attaching people or deciding I'm just going with myself and that's sort of a decision in and of itself. And then I think the actual pitch, um, it's changed a lot this year because they're all via Zoom. And so that, again, is a different skill. Usually if you're in a room, you know, um, they make you wait for about 15 to 20 minutes and then they come in. And um, I know some people have done presentations where they set up slideshows. Some people do um, pamphlets or um, 
sort of visual decks that they hand out. And so that's one way to go about it. I'm a talker. And so I just tend to talk through the story and the characters and all of that. And so I think there is such an energy when you're in the room because you can feed off of them. You know, they laugh at your jokes or they kind of respond in certain ways. And that sort of lends itself to its own experience. I think Zoom, you know, everyone else is muted and they're kind of looking at you. And if they laugh, it's sort of like a like they, you don't see them laugh. And so it's, um, it can be a little nerve wracking in a different way. But the thing that I've liked about the Zoom pitches this year is that everyone's very comfortable in the setting. You know, it's not like you're coming off of being on the freeway and then you had to park and find, you know, you're in your home and they're all in their home. I've been in pitches where the executive is like in bed with their headphones on. And (laughs) so there's, I know, so it's a bit of a different, um, vibe, a different energy, but I think it, can be beneficial in some ways. Um, but in terms of like the structure of the pitch and all of that, I think that's very singular to the person, you know, um, the way I tend to do it is sort of start by talking about myself and why, and my connection to whatever the story is and why, you know, you kind of, you want to convince them of why you're the person to tell the story. And after that, it's just about the characters and the plot and the tone and the pilot and that sort of thing. And, um, sometimes you'll sell a show based on, a pilot that's already been written. And sometimes you sell it just based off the pitch and idea. Um, And so those are kind of different when it comes to the contracts and whether they've read you or not and all of that. Um, So yeah, that's kind of um, a loose, loose (laughs) overview of the pitch process because you could pitch to 10 places, you could pitch to one place. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people tend to practice pitch a lot. You know, they ask friends to hear them and they practice in the mirror and that sort of thing. And I should do that more. I, <laughs> I'm very, I think, um, I like kind of just talking off the cuff because I view pitches as just a conversation. I think of it like if you were able to like go to someone and just tell them about your favorite show, how would you talk about it? You know, you want to be excited about it. You want to tell them, you know, who your favorite character is and what your favorite episode is. And I think that's how people should view pitches is like, it's your favorite show, but it's your show that you get to talk about. And in that regard, it's just a conversation and it should be a fun conversation. And my favorite part of pitches is the question and answer part, because you want them to have questions. You don't want to give them an hour's worth of information and then they have nothing to ask. You want to give them like 20 minutes of information. And then they're like, you mentioned something about the friendship dynamic. Talk more about that. You know, that's my favorite part because then, you know, they're interested in something and you want to have that back and forth with them. And I think. Um, that's the more fun part of pitching for me. I think that's really great advice. And one final question before we do my little quick fire at the end. The big question that everybody always asks in screenwriting communities online, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it as a fully fledged writer, <laughs> is the whole question about getting noticed initially anyway. I know this might be slightly difficult for you because obviously you came up through the quite Hollywood-centric jobs market. But for someone who you know, is somewhere in America or, or indeed, you know, any country, what would be your advice in the whole getting your script out there, the face of agents, etc.? Yeah, that is often a question that I get asked too. That's tricky because um, I think agents in a lot of ways are so incredibly helpful at getting your script, your ideas to people, getting you meetings, getting you generals and that sort of thing. Um, but 
it's very hard to even get a meeting with an agent if you don't already have work. Like I got my agent after I had already been promoted on Horror Story. So, you know, I'd already gotten my first job. And so they were like, yeah, of course we'll take you on. You're already working. And um, it's kind of that chicken and the egg thing a little bit. Um, I think in my opinion, um, the best thing you can do when you're kind of waiting to get noticed is to practice writing. You know, I, I always talk about getting shitty writing done, you know, um, because by the time that I had gotten promoted, I had written probably five spec scripts, three original pilots, sketches upon sketches. And so, and I look back at them and none of them are great, you know, but um, they're all, I can see myself getting better. And I think by the time I actually got the opportunity to be in a room, I was by no means great or perfect, but I was better than I was at 19 or 20 or 21 or 22. And so I think um, that is like my minimum advice is like, keep writing. You don't have to write every day. You don't have to schedule time every day to write, but keep coming up with ideas, keep workshopping things, have table reads with your friends. I think that stuff is really important. And then I think when you're putting that energy out there, when you're making very clear that like, this is what I want to do. Um, I think from there, that's when you can start reaching out to people. I think people would be surprised how many writers are willing to talk to people through like Instagram and stuff. Like writers who have 500 to 800 Instagram followers are not necessarily on our high horse being like, of course I won't take you out for coffee. Like we're usually, um, we're happy to because people like talking about themselves. And I think most writers remember what it's like being an assistant. They remember what it's like being unemployed and they want to at least help by giving advice, you know? And I think, um, that is a step that a lot of people forget. I think a lot of people are like, I want to get to an agent. I want to talk to an agent at CAA. And it's like, well, talk to other writers first. Talk to producers, talk to directors, listen to podcasts. Um, do that sort of legwork to show that you're putting in the time to learn this craft and um, learn the thing you want to be doing. And I think from that, people... In my experience, I, I, I know that there are some not great people in the industry who, you know, want to close the doors and not let anybody in. But in my experience, I think if you're genuinely going to someone asking for help and just advice, people want to help. I think I, when I was unemployed, I went out for countless coffee dates with people genuinely just to be like, tell me about your experience. At the end of almost every single one, they would say, send me your resume. And if I hear of anything, I'll let you know. Or um, I know somebody who works in sitcoms that would love to talk to you. And I think people like doing that. They want to help usually. And so um, I think don't discount that approach to things because that can help you get in a room to work your way up. Um, and I think off of that, I do want to say when you're sending those emails or those Instagram messages, don't attach your script or your resume to them. I think it's incredibly presumptuous. <laughs> um, and so I think if you're genuinely going to just learn, um, people want to help. And then from there, of course, you can work your way up. In terms of agents themselves, um, you know, if you're really like, I just want to talk to them, I think try talking to junior agents, talk to agents' assistants, you know, join those assistant groups, go to once, you know, lockdown lifts and the pandemic is maybe not as pandemic-y. Um, there's always a lot of mixers and that sort of thing. I think those things, even if you don't get anything from them, I'm using air quotes there. Um, I think you can always meet people and you can learn a lot from that. And you know, the assistants of today are the bosses of tomorrow. And so um, I think that can often be a smart, smarter approach. I think it's very valuable. And on, on that note, I'm going to move on to my last little bit, which is 
a quick fire question round, and it's my own themed one in the style of in the actor's studio. So <laughs> just say whatever comes into your head. Are you ready, Asha? I am ready. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Be good and people will want to give you good in return. Do you have a favorite film or TV show? Favorite film? It's got to be a tie between The Princess Bride and Clueless. Favorite TV show is Peep Show. An excellent choice. Excellent choice. And the second part of that question I always like to ask is if our listeners were to watch something that you've worked on tonight, what should they watch? Oh, um, <laughs> if they're stoners, they should watch Fresh Beat Band of Spies. Um, if they're not, I would say, um, oh gosh, I, I think I think 1984 is a fun season of American Horror Story. It's um, anyone who likes 80s horror stuff will have fun with that. Fantastic. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day and write? That in the hope that... Um, there's some little girl or boy or non-binary child out there who wants to watch TV in the hope that I can write something that they would watch and it would be their favorite show. Great answer. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? In the industry? Um, probably acting. I think I, I, I tend to write myself into a lot of things. So that would be. Number five, this is a big question. If you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? Taika Waititi. Oh, living or dead? Living Taika Waititi. I think he's such a genius. Yeah. Dead Madeline Kahn. I love her. Cool. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? Can I do three? Go for it. Okay. The Phantom Tollbooth. I love that book. It's my favorite book of all time. Um, How Not to Be a Boy by Robert Webb from Peep Show. I think it's a brilliantly written memoir. Um, and in the TV world, sort of, Kristen Newman's book, What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding, is just a really funny, insightful memoir that talks a little bit about TV writing, but also just talks about balancing career and love and travel in a way that um, is hilarious and sexy and fun. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? My mom. <laughs> Great answer. And on that note, thank you so much to Asha for joining us today. Amazing advice and a really interesting perspective for our podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store, on your iPhone, or online if you're an Android user. And of course, any support via our Patreon page or merch is amazing. So if you'd like to help, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and follow the links. If you'd like regular updates of what's going on, you can also follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook or RC Rookies Pod on Twitter. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.